Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Live on tape from Doncaster, it's the Ed Miliband Show. Well, hello. How are you? I'm well. I've had another busy week monitoring your media appearances. Go on. You've been busy promoting... The benefits of cold water swimming, and to a lesser extent, your book. Oh, and I saw you on morning TV. Lorraine. Yes. Love her. Did you enjoy it? Lorraine was lovely. Lorraine's on ITV, for those who don't know. She's been on ITV for a long time. Yeah, people know. She's beloved. This is not new information to anyone. Go on. Um, She has her own programme, Lorraine Kelly. (laughs) And as I was standing there, I was just talking to someone from my office just before the interview. uh, and, and, And I said, oh, just hang on one sec. Um, let's just look at the intro. Let's Lorraine's intro to the whole programme. I said, and later we'll be talking to Ed Miliband about how politics drove him into therapy. Oh, no. And I thought, and I thought to myself, that's, that's like a think of it moment, you know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, anyway, but she was lovely. Oh, she's so wonderful. Oh, she's lovely. I met her. Oh, yes. Sarah and I were in a restaurant yes. and she came over with her daughter, Rosie, who wanted to talk about the podcast and they were so nice. She was very complimentary about the podcast, actually. Um, and, and then as we were leaving, I thought, oh, I should go and say goodbye. So I went over to the table where they were sitting and within a split second, the waiter appeared out of nowhere like a shot. It was like that film in The Line of Fire. He was ready to act as a human shield between me and the rain. He was that close to saying, excuse me, uh, Miss Kelly, is, is this man bothering you? Well, that is unfortunate. He didn't ask for a selfie with you. <laughs> anyway, she is lovely. Um, and her programme comes on after TV AM, doesn't it? Good Morning Britain, yeah. Same thing, the one with Wincy Willis and Roland Rapp. TVAM, yeah. Egg Cups, Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I noticed that you are on the same morning as Harry Redknapp, who you were once Mm -hmm. mistaken for. I was mistaken for in a restaurant in my constituency. (laughs) Slightly bizarrely, because I don't really look like Harry Redknapp. 
So when you turned up for your interview, they didn't say, ah, Mr. Redknapp, we're so excited to have you on the show. Your dressing room is right this way. No, they were all um, uh, they were all terribly nice. But maybe they thought they were being nice to Harry Redknapp. Um, yeah. So just one other thing. I didn't see it go out live. My friend's mum watched it and said, oh, Ed was very good on Lorraine. Mm. So I then decided to watch it on Catch Up. Mm. And on the day that you're on, on the ITV player on the Lorraine page, they had a still image of you with the caption, Love Island star Kem Setine joins Lorraine. It's an easy mistake to make, Jeff, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it is. I do look a lot like a Love Island star, don't I? Yes, very much so. Orange, sculpted, completely free of body hair. Yeah. The other thing I was going to bring up is that you have also invaded my podcast listening this week. My How to Fail appeared with Elizabeth Day. Yeah, that's the one. I thought it was excellent. Oh, well, you were so nice. I thought it was so good. I had a little cry. Now, as you know, I am the sort of person who will cry at a John Lewis advert or a reality TV best bits montage. But I found it really moving when you were talking about your dad. Was, and you did such a nice tweet to Elizabeth, uh, although I'm not on Twitter, but I did look at that. Hang um, on, do you have a special secret version of Twitter where you can only see nice things? No, but I occasionally just, I don't actually go on Twitter. I, you can just look up people's tweets. And I, I, I got sent Elizabeth's tweet and then I l- looked up the sort of replies to her, I think. Um, it was it was, it was was very nice of you. Um, well, I am delightful. No, I thought it was a lovely interview. And I really enjoyed your GQ profile with Jude Rogers, who's a very good writer. And I wouldn't be surprised if they invite you back to model some casual knitwear. You were smouldering in the photos that went with that piece. You were really making love to the camera. I think you're confusing me with Kim Satinay from Love Island. There is quite a lot of... Oh, you've got such a personality these days, isn't there? Yes, it does crop up with some regularity. How does that make you feel? Like maybe I've got a personality these days. It's all started with the podcast, Jeff. Here's something I've been thinking about. I like the way that the process of letting people know that you've written a book involves having to be repeatedly asked probing questions about some of the most difficult moments of your life. The Labour leadership race, the bacon sandwich, the Edstone the losing the election it just isn't like that in any other line of work no one says to a traveling salesperson i might be interested in uh, buying some of your cleaning products but first tell me about that time you were dumped you know it was funny how did it feel to wet yourself in public when you were eight it was funny earlier earlier on in Doncaster, i was talking to this very nice um policeman um and he said to me, I've never had this. He said, oh, I read a really moving interview that you gave um, about um, the general election, the impact it had on you. And then he said, I mean, I suppose, basically, it's like being just completely dumped by a girlfriend, isn't it? And you're just basically dumped and thrown <laughs> on the scrappy by a girlfriend. I was like, yeah. Uh, but he was he was very nice. He was sort of meaning it in a nice way. But but it was sort of, I was thinking, oh, well, that's one way of thinking about it, which I haven't heard in the past. Um, I think the country was the girlfriend just for the sort of... Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think we got it. I think we understood the analogy. You got it. You, you, you got it the first time. Well, never mind. There's plenty more electorates in the sea. Now, should we say what we're talking about on the... Duda this week. Yes. We're going to start with the clip. The gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, 
neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. That was uh, Robert Kennedy. And this week, we're looking at another of the ideas from my book, Go Big, the case for using alternative measures of national success to GDP or gross domestic product alone. GDP measures monetary value of everything produced within a country. But as Robert Kennedy said in that speech, it fails to account for so many of the things that matter to our lives. And yet it is often used as the primary measure of a country's success. The second part of my book discusses the need for markets to be restrained by the values of society And I start the section by arguing that what we measure shapes how we act and that focusing solely on GDP can be a barrier to protecting the things that we value. We're going to start by talking to Catherine Trebek from the Wellbeing Economy Alliance about some of the problems with GDP and how places from New Zealand to Wales are experimenting with alternatives. Then we're talking to renowned economist Kate Raworth. We last spoke to Kate in 2018 about her idea of donut economics, and we're going to be catching up with her on how it's being built into practice around the world. And then we're talking to Roxana Fiaz, the mayor of Newham in East London, about why Newham has decided to use health and well-being as its primary measure of success. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that this Monday, so the day this episode comes out, it is my son's first ever school sports day. And I've been having horrible flashbacks to my own childhood. Yeah. And I've been worrying yeah. about him feeling humiliated by the whole thing. Yeah. But I found out from the teacher that it's not a winning races kind of sports day. It's a touchy feely joiny anyone. I mean that joiny innies would be good for me. Do you I, I have very painful memories yeah, yeah, yeah. of being yeah. at school and yeah. being so far behind the other kids that I was aware of being patronised yeah. by other people's parents as they were clapping me. I remember getting picked for our school swimming team once. I think it was primary school, and it was sort of very unfortunate that I got picked because I was. it was basically, I think, only four people competed for the real, for the front crawl or something, and then they needed a relay team, I think, or I was fourth out of eight or something. And I was the last leg in the race, and we, I was so slow that all the other teams had finished. And I was just sort of starting. And t- oh, Ed, it is a wonder and a credit to you that you ever got in the water again after that. I fully empathise. Go on. I, um, I was once putting goals for my primary school football team mm. when they needed to make up the numbers due to a mumps outbreak. Uh, and I think I let in 14 goals in one game. It's so traumatic thinking about it. I, I find myself just wishing that I'd had mumps. Let's get off the subject. What is your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful, I'm afraid, does relate to my book, sorry, um, which is that I got on the tube the other day and I was sitting on the Victoria line uh, and I sat down and sitting opposite me, there was a lady reading a book and it was my book. What a great thing. And I'm so grateful to you for having arranged it. Um <laughs> Uh, it was actually Sarah wearing an elaborate disguise. She had an earpiece in and I was saying, OK, he's getting on. You need to be in carriage number two. Um, uh, and so then I, there was a guy about two seats away from me and I kind of raised my eyebrows at him and went uh, in a kind of, that's me way. And he yes, was like, that was me in Groucho Marx, glasses, moustache and false nose. And then uh, I thought, mm, do I say something? Do I not say something? Uh, do I, I don't want to take off my mask. So I kind of 
thought about it for a stop and then I thought, okay, I can't really restrain myself here because it's like, you know, um, <laughs> you know, it might not happen again and Jeff's arranged it and everything. So I was like, oh, hello, in a sort of wavy way. And then the lady recognised who I was and she said, oh, it's great so far. And I said, what do you mean only so far? <laughs> no, uh, uh, and so then I let her carry on reading because I thought I didn't want to interrupt her reading time. And then as we got off, she said, oh, you know, thank you so much for the podcast. That's lovely. That What a great thing. What you need is one of those masks of the bottom of your own face, which makes it easier for people to recognise you. Or maybe, maybe like the book title on the mask. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start off our conversation about GDP and its alternative and the alternatives to it, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by somebody of great renown on these issues, Catherine Trebek, who is advocacy and influencing lead at the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure. Wonderful to be with you all. Could you just start um, by giving us an overview of, of what GDP is and some of the problems that there are with using it? as the primary measure of economic success? Sure. So GDP was created roughly 90 years ago to measure how the US was emerging from the Great Recession and how the New Deal of Roosevelt was delivering and impacting the economy. And it essentially measures money changing hands, so spending by consumers, by business and government. And obviously that's very consumption-orientated and it's blind to distribution. But it has come, despite all those flaws and even despite the warnings of its creator, it has come to dominate how we understand the economic success of the country and perhaps even the national success in a more general terms of the country. I mean, we hear at the moment the G7 is meeting. The entry ticket to that club is how big's your GDP? The headline news at the moment, what was April's GDP per capita? And the problem with that, with letting GDP dominate our mindsets about how the economy is performing, is that there's so many perverse incentives bound up with GDP. I mean, it it counts as a win when we knock down a forest. It doesn't count as anything when we spend time in our gardens cooking for each other, growing our own vegetables. As feminist economists have been warning for decades, it ignores that vital care economy that is so crucial for the rest of society and I think really came into its own in the last last year or so. And it also really doesn't reward us when we protect the planet. And it, it also has a whole lot of activities that really count when we get it wrong, but it doesn't celebrate when we get it right. So if we keep people healthy, if we don't have to treat people with medicines, if people are staying in healthy relationships, if they're staying safe, if they're not crashing their cars, GDP won't move. And yet all those outcomes are a good thing for society. And so it's problematic for so many different reasons. And what about the argument, Catherine, that you know a lot of people would say, well, the pandemic has shown actually how useful GDP is as a measure, because when you've seen countries' GDP fall very significantly, it has been a sign of massive economic distress. It leads to significantly lower tax revenues, makes funding public services difficult. So so there might be problems with GDP, but it still has quite a lot going for it. Well, I mean, it's still have a role. So I'm not saying let's ditch it completely, as long as we understand its problems and its drawbacks and its caveats and don't put it on, I think, a very ill-deserved pedestal. I mean, it does track what it is designed to track. But in terms of its link to 
job quality. We know from decades of experience that you can have a growing economy where the quality of jobs are not what we deserve. And at the start of the pandemic, people were suddenly very alive to that, to the nature of jobs in our system. And we'd had tiny GDP growth over the last few years, and that hasn't added up to poverty reduction or quality jobs. Food banks have still been rising. And that idea that we need to grow the economy in order to be able to take some taxes back to deal with the harm that we created in step one, it's almost this long way around to the sort of lives that people want to need. Uh, it's sort of taking this long route. If we could design the economy in a way that's explicitly and concertedly set up to deliver what people and planet need, we wouldn't have to sequester so much back through tax to then heal and fix and undo the harm. What's the alternative to it? I mean, how should we think about the purpose of the economy instead? And what do you mean when you talk about building a well-being economy? Well, at the heart of the well-being economy agenda is essentially daring to ask, but why? Why are we seeing so many symptoms, so many crises, so many challenges facing our economy and almost channel the sort of three or four-year-old that all of us will know and have in our lives who is constantly saying, but why? So channel that young person and say, but why? Why, prior to COVID, were food banks rising, the number of food banks that people were turning to? Why was levels of in-work poverty going up? Why were there rising levels of loneliness? Why were scientists warning of the six-month extinction? And so often when you're like that three or four-year-old and you say, but why? you find yourself facing how the economy is set up, who's winning and who's losing, how we reward different activities, how we price different things. And so the wellbeing economy is essentially saying what we need to do is reposition the economy as in service of higher order goals. It's about delivering social justice on a healthy planet. That's at its very simplest. That's what a wellbeing economy is about. And when it comes to growth, it's about saying, let's be fair weather friends of growth have growing what we need in the right circumstances, the right scenarios, the right places, but let's not be ever faithful followers. What's really interesting about this is that there are now a number of countries, I think it's called the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership, that are not just talking about the alternatives, but trying to put them into practice. So perhaps you can talk to us about about what's happened in New Zealand, Iceland, and now Finland. Those governments recognise that in the 21st century, development cannot be about simply faster, faster GDP growth for all the reasons we've already discussed and and many more. They recognise that it has to be about putting collective wellbeing at the heart of economic policymaking. But they're also united by great humility that none of them have all the answers. And so they're all in their different ways working on trying to transform their economic systems so they're much more orientated to multi-dimensional collective well-being. And so we see New Zealand quite famously in 2019 bring in its well-being budget. That's about aligning government departments to the causes of well-being. It's using something called the Living Standards Framework to look at where are some of the deficiencies in well-being across different population groups and pile in the policy and the spending in order to attend to that. One of the most exciting things about what New Zealand's doing is really compelling government departments to work together because none of these things are the preserve of one single government department on its own. They need to link arms like they've never done before. We see Iceland also has a wellbeing framework. It's got six dominant priorities. It's really putting its shoulder into the gender justice equality, does a lot of work on gender budgeting. Finland, when it had held the presidency of the European Union, 
It really put the idea of the economy of well-being firmly on the map. It's really fantastic, again, with gender equality in the workplace, with the circular economy, with renewable energy. And then, of course, the, the other two governments, Scotland and Wales, are also doing a lot. They've got their wellbeing frameworks as well. And Scotland, where I'm based, they call it the National Performance Framework. And they're starting to explore how do you align the budget and policy making with that. And then Wales, I think, has gone a little bit edgier than some of the other governments with their Future Generations Act, which says all government agencies need to be aligned with these priorities that came from the people of Wales. It was very much a deliberative process. They really said, what is wellbeing for Wales? And now they've got a position called the Future Generations Commissioner, whose job it is, is to scrutinise draft budgets and to scrutinise the performance of all the different public bodies to check how are they delivering in getting towards those wellbeing goals. And and that aspect of scrutiny, I guess, is important because some people, they hear wellbeing and they think of maybe like one fuzzy subjective measure, like sometimes when we measure happiness, which of course mm-hmm. has, has a value. Maybe it'd be useful for people to hear just what some of the other gauges on the dashboard are typically. In yeah, terms of these metrics. Yeah, exactly. And and often subjective well-being will be part of it. Uh, I'd get a little anxious if it was the only part of it. I think there's much more to life than on a scale of one to ten, how happy are you? Though happiness scholars would say actually it is is more useful probably than I'd I'd concede. But I think we need to be a little bit richer and nuanced than that. And if you look at groups like the OECD, they've got a really rich multi-dimensional wellbeing framework where they take into account the stocks of natural capital, things like time, time use and work-life balance, levels of inequality, the quality of jobs, financial precariousness, gender justice, all those sorts of diverse factors that have a, have a role to play in how people understand and feel their quality of life. And it's also about quality of life now and into the future, and that's really critical about taking the environment into account. How do we avoid the problem of what I perceive to have happened with the UK government, which is that the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, produces a large number of measures of well-being, but it hasn't really challenged the dominance of GDP? I think you're entirely right that there are plenty of measures. I mean, it's 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 not a lack of metrics and data now. I mean, of, of course, we could always probably improve the timeliness of data and perhaps measure things more robustly, but it's no longer an ex- excuse to say we don't measure these sorts of things, these sort of aspects of quality of life. Now the trick is to really grasp the metal of understanding. It's quite a profound mindset shift to shift our thinking around understanding the economy not being a goal in and of itself, but thinking about the economy as something that's not only embedded in nature and embedded in society, but being in service of delivering quality of life. And that's quite a different way of thinking about the economy. We have to think about what sort of businesses do we need? What sort of taxes? What sort of subsidies do we need? What sort of incentive structures? What do we need to grow more of? And what do we need to power down? So this is nothing short of economic system change, this conversation. It's not just measuring a few more nice things and putting them alongside GDP and reporting them. This is about really redesigning the policy regime so that it reshapes the way the economy operates. I also think it's a it's a question for when the Chancellor goes into a BBC news studio the day after bringing down the budget and the first question should be not 
what's this going to do for to, for growth, Rishi? Is this going? What's this going to do for loneliness? What's this going to do for the number of people who are homeless on our streets? What's this going to do for biodiversity? And shift that accountability question as well. I think the fact we're even asking that question shows how the debate has moved on. The beyond GDP debate is maturing, and we're at almost a new stage, but perhaps a harder stage now. That you know, we've gone through the foothills, and now the the steeper climb is still to come. And in any of the countries you've mentioned, or anywhere for that matter, has it crossed over from being something that steers the way that governments think about policymaking to a way in which the public is measuring how well their country or their city is going? You know, like you in an election campaign, you will hear the GDP bandied about as a measure of success. Mm-hmm. Is is that starting to to happen in elections? When you hear the public talk about what matters to them, and particularly through deliberative exercises, perhaps even more so than quick rapid fire opinion polling, when people sit down and have a chance to reflect on what really matters to them, so often they talk about these various dimensions of quality of life. It's relationships, it's how secure and suitable their job is. Not so much monumental amounts of pay, but having enough pay, sufficiency of income. It's about health, it's about their local environment. And those that sort of rich texture understanding of what makes up quality of life for people, what's important for people, I think politicians are starting to hear that on the doorsteps. I think they're starting to put that in, in manifestos. I, I have a dream, Jeff, that maybe instead of measuring GDP and or going into elections saying under my watch will grow the economy and recovery will look like this in terms of GDP, Instead of that, we'll have politicians of the future saying, under my watch, it'll be the number of girls who ride their bikes to school that will go up. And we'll use that as a measure of progress, because I bet you everyday people will see that that's an important thing that reflects their dreams and their hopes for their families and their local streets and their communities, much more than some abstract incremental increases in GDP per capita. We have a thing on the podcast. It's, it's Ed's idea. I mean, I, I unwillingly took on the mantle, uh, but it's kind of a utopia with me installed as a benign dictator and Ed as the puppet prime minister. It's called the Jeffocracy. If if we, we said, uh, Catherine, look, we, we want to move, we want to transition the Jeffocracy into being a well-being economy. What What is the first thing? I give you carte blanche. What is the first thing you do on day one? Oh, gosh, probably ask for a lot of help and probably build a team around me for, for the sort of reasons we were just saying that this, this you know, is complicated and and it needs, you know, lots of hands to the tiller. Uh, I'd, I think what I'd do is I'd pile in and looking at the ecosystem of the economy. What sort of businesses do we have? Are they extractive type businesses that are just going in for the, the quick win and the quick buck? Or are they businesses that are designed to align themselves with these higher order goals like worker cooperatives, social enterprises, community interest companies. And of course, these all exist in in the UK. There's a plethora of these sorts of businesses that show us that this is possible. But I think, you know, how we'd start to judge the success of a well-being Jeffocracy is, you know, maybe number of girls who ride their bikes to school and, you know, completely push GDP back into the 20th century where it belongs. I guess people are so used to obsessing about the number uh, GDP. How, how do you get them unhooked off that? How do you sell the idea of thinking about what success for a society is differently? 
partly by speaking to them and taking the time to have, have a conversation with them about what really matters. But in terms of communicating the possibility of change, because I often think one of the biggest challenges in this agenda is that we just don't have the imagination or even the hope that things could be done better. And so at the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, we've been working with advertising experts and storytellers and artists, and we've just launched an initiative with our partners, the Green Economy Coalition, called Stories for Life. And there's lots of different ideas on there where people can go in and see memes and phrasing and narrative and lots of pictures and imagery that just make it compelling to everyday people as opposed to sort of policy geeks like me. Catherine Trebek, thank you so much. Uh, that's Catherine Trebek. And if people want to uh, see that stuff, they would just look up the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and those resources are all there for them. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And it's weall.org and everyone who, who wants to work on economic system change and do so together is so welcome to be part of that group. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Well, we're going to welcome back to the podcast uh, one of our favorite guests of the last couple of years who just has a, a way of explaining how we could create an alternative dashboard of success in a way that even I can understand, primarily because it's it's dough-based, uh, is the author of Donut Economics, co-founder of the Donut Economics Action Lab, Kate Rayworth. Hello. Hi, really, really good to be back. I am slightly worried that the, the last time I did go a bit too heavy on uh, literal donuts, but I mean, it's, it definitely stuck with me. Well, there you go. Donuts are sticky. What are you going to do? <laughs> the world has gone donut mad since we last spoke, which I think actually was about three years ago. Um, ev everybody's talking donuts now. Well, it's it's pretty amazing that ideas get traction just when the world feels like it's cracking open and looking for them, right? So the donut's been lying around since 2012, nearly a decade, and 
I've just been blown away, yeah, over the last couple of years. And for anybody who either didn't hear that episode, hasn't read the book, wasn't with us in Hay when when we talked about it, can you remind us what the donut is and, and you know, how it's at the, the core of your idea? Yes. So I think we need to change not just the metrics of the future, but the shape of what we think progress looks like. We inherited the 20th century model where underlying every conversation about economics, it was clear what the shape was. It was endless growth, an ever-rising curve. Politicians, economic journalists, economic professors, growth up through the ceiling. Nobody asks what happens next. We keep on growing 3.5%, please, every year, no matter how rich a country already is. And I think that concept that progress lies in endless expansion has taken us into multiple crises. It's led us to financial meltdown. It's taken us into climate and ecological breakdown. So we need to transform our idea of what is the shape of progress. And yeah, slightly crazy it sounds. I think it looks like a donut. So it's the kind with a hole in the middle. If you think of humanity's use of Earth's resources as radiating out from the middle, we want to leave nobody in the hole in the donut. That's where people don't have the resources they need for a life of dignity and opportunity and community. Everyone needs enough food, good housing, education, healthcare, transport, income, participation, belonging, political voice. So leave no one in the donuts hole. By the way, the world's governments agree with this because they've already said sustainable development goals. Let's get them out of that deprivation. But, and this is the very 21st century but, because in the 20th century it seemed fine. Grow your economy, create jobs for people, people get income, we can meet everyone's needs. We can get everyone out the hole of the donut. The 21st century says, hang on a minute, the way we are creating jobs, the way we are running industries, we are pushing on the limits of this planet's life-supporting systems. We are breaking down the stability of our climate. We are destroying biodiversity. We are converting too much of Earth's land for human use. So there's an ecological ceiling beyond which we mustn't go. So you get these two concentric circles. Leave nobody falling short in the hole in the middle. Don't surpass the outer ring. And in the simplest terms, I could say the goal of the donut is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. We've got to stay within the boundaries of the donut. And this is what you've been talking about. As you said, it's captured people's imagination to to the extent that you have set up an action lab, which yeah. sounds incredibly exciting. I'm quite jealous, really, and I think we should have a, a reason to be cheerful action lab. Definitely. Aside from getting to wear, wear white coats, um, what, what happens in the lab? Tell us what goes on in your, your action lab and how you're putting the donut economics into practice. So it was because so many people were coming up to me saying, yeah, but I actually want to do this. I'm a teacher. I'm a community activist. I'm a local councillor. I'm, I'm an MP. I'm a business leader. I'm doing this. I thought, oh, blimey, this idea is actually asking not just to be a book. It's asking to be in practice. And so I thought, I need to create a space that brings together these amazing change makers, allows them to connect, create tools, create inspirations and stories. So actually it was only when I came up with the idea of being an action lab that I thought I can do this. I never wanted to make institute, you know, a, a centre. It sounds far too big and made yeah. of bricks. And action lab is, is a really intentional name. It's all about action. The ideas on the page, now let's put them into action. And it's a lab because this is one big experiment of how we transform our economies, how we collaborate, and also about how we share ideas. So everything we do, we put into the commons. And we share our ideas with anybody who wants to put them into practice. We simply ask for reciprocity. If you want to use these ideas, please share back any innovations you make, share back any experience you have. Because what I've learned over the last year and a half of doing this, there is nothing like peer-to-peer -peer inspiration. 
So I can stand on a stage or go on a podcast and say, you know, what if what if policymakers brought their cities into the donut? But it's when a mayor stands up and says, yeah, oh, we, we're doing this. We've adopted the donut in our city and this is how we're putting it into practice. Mayor's ears prick up and they say, whoa, that thing that sounded crazy, off beam, beyond possible. And that mayor's already doing it. And it, you can see the conviction rising in people. If there, why not here? And the ripples of inspiration just fly in so fast. And one of those cities is Amsterdam. Tell us, tell us about what's going on there and uh, the kind of measures that they've introduced. So Amsterdam knew that they wanted to create a circular economy, right? We all need to go to low carbon, zero carbon. But the climate crisis is one crisis. We're also having an impact on the living world through massive resource use, especially in the cities and nations of the global north. We're drawing in materials and matter to make our clothing and food and electronics and construction materials and consumer goods. And then this stream of waste that goes out. So Amsterdam said, we recognise we have to transform this. We're going to create a circular economy. And they used the donut as their sort of concept at the heart of their vision. So we want to create a circular economy that also is socially equitable, that creates jobs for people, that also helps transform our impact on climate change. So they put it at the centre of their vision. What I'm impressed about what Amsterdam have done, quite a few things. One, they were the first city to stand up and say, we're going to be a donut economy. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a level at which people said, you, you what? A donut, right? And they said, yeah, we're going to do this. Here's the vision and we're going to put it into practice. They came up with a really big vision to be an, a thriving, inclusive, regenerative city for all people while respecting planetary boundaries. And then they've got this district of the city called Bijkslotterham. Love my Dutch accent. Bijkslotterham is this circular living lab where you can build housing or offices or anything that happens there has to be circular. It's all about learning. So some of the designs will work and some of them won't work, but it's all learning. And of course, what happens in that experimental site then becomes an example of the whole city. And what happens in the whole city inspires other cities, inspires other nations, and we see this rising. We're all big schlutteramizers now. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it very well, the, the uh, pronunciation. Now, tell us where is it going to go next. By the way, the chief executive of Doncaster Council, a man called Damien Allen, is also a fan of donut economics. Let's go, Doncaster. Where is it going to go next, Kate? National government? Yeah, so we started with cities because our first principle, we're a tiny team. And so our first principle is we never knock on a shut door. We've never once asked anybody to talk about the donut, use the donut, promote the donut. It's all people who are coming to us and saying, you know, this serves the transformation we already know we want to make. So it began with cities. And there's some reasons why I think cities are being a space of innovation and leadership right now. And yes, national government. And I would say, I think uh, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, she doesn't stand on the stage and say donut, but I know that she's read the book. She said it really reinforced a lot of the ideas she already agreed with and that what she's doing there to create a well-being economy really, really resonates with these principles. But also in Barbados, the government of Barbados are exploring using the donut. In the Dutch Caribbean island of Curaçao, they've already cr produced a donut. So it's smaller places that somehow have the courage to say, we're going to innovate. I think there's something very interesting about why it's taken off so much. And, and it, it, do you think it's because of this, which is that people have been sort of going on about alternatives to GDP for a long time? But what is the great beauty of GDP or, sim or, or, or attraction of GDP is its simplicity and its sort of one measure? The danger of this is it sounds incredibly complicated and incredibly hard to understand and that what you've managed to do, you've managed to find a way of giving it meaning and, and, and 
kind of comprehensibility, which lots of the other ways of talking about this haven't done. So, and I ask myself this as well. Um, one, you've got to be for something. I mean, we can all say we're against GDP, yeah. critique GDP, but like, okay, tell me what you're for. Yeah. And sometimes the most powerful form of protest is to propose something new. And two, there is something very powerful about the single number, but there's also something very powerful about a single picture. And when, when I first drew the donut diagram in 2012, uh, it was the run-up to the UN Conference on Sustainable Development in Rio, the Rio Plus 20 conference, and I showed it to lots of policymakers in advance, and many people said, this is, this is how I've always thought about sustainable development. I've never seen the picture before, and I could see they found this picture empowering. So one picture that you can then show on it, the visuals, you can show where we're falling short and where we're in overshoot, and it is one picture. It's got many more indicators in it, but you can see that visual snapshot country by country by country. So that's compelling too. And it's got a multiplicity to it, but hey, the world's complex. If I, if I offered you a car that I said, hey, Ed, you're going to love this car, you know, it's got one dial... You don't have to worry about the whole dashboard, just one dial and it's got the speed and the petrol and the temperature and the revs all in this one dial. You don't want to drive that car. So why would we want to govern our economies that way? So, of course, we need a dashboard. We just need to make compelling ways of showing it. And I think GDP's always had this advantage that so much money is poured into collecting it. Right. And then you get this quarterly update. And how is the economy doing on this quarter of versus last year and last and other data has been much slower to be updated. And so it's not so newsworthy. Well, the world of data is getting richer and it's getting faster and it's getting more human and it's getting more ecological. So we are in this data revolution going to have much greater capacity to listen to earth and society in their natural metrics, the metrics of people's lives, the metrics of the health of the planet. And that's going to become almost more like real time. And the more that that comes through, the idea that instead of looking at that rich pulsing reality that no, 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 let's turn to this one number of monetary sales going up and down will seem absurd. And if Simon Kuznets were alive, you know, the creator of the number that we now call GDP, be like, what are you doing? <laughs> I only had that number. You've got this phenomenal data source. Come on, guys. Wake up. It's the 21st century. Move on. He'd be the first to move into this. Let's ask this question finally, which is, if our listeners like the sound of the Donut Economics Action Lab, how do they get involved in your work? So we exist because we know there are amazing change makers everywhere. Some of them are community organisers and parents at the school gate. Some of them are teachers in a classroom. Some of them are students in their classroom. Some of them are town councillors. Some of them are MPs and some of them are leaders. And there's many people stuck in institutions that frustrate them. But I've just come to realise there are amazing people everywhere, some working inside the system, some protesting outside it, who want to make change happen. And if they see these concepts of the donut, we want to create a regenerative economy and a distributive economy and donut is a vision for getting there. If that looks enticing to you, you can just become a member of our community at donuteconomics.org. Join the community or you can just browse the tools we've got and learn from the stories that people are sharing back. So we hugely welcome your listeners to join us. Well, look, Kate, um, it's always an incredible pleasure and incredibly inspiring to talk to you. you you make us incredibly cheerful uh we are all massive believers in the donut uh thank you so much for joining us thank you and listen ed i i, I hope the donut and go big are like cousin books right i mean they totally. sit right next to each other <laughs> i hope this book has the punch and potential it has the, the the optimism and that energy and like there is so much happening in the world 
Let's just scale it up and spread it out and enable it to fly. Now, to talk about what this might mean in practice uh, and how it's being worked on in the UK, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Roxana Fias, who is Mayor of Newham in East London. Roxana, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start off just with the basics. Tell us about your decision last year to start using health and well-being as the primary measures of economic success in Newham. Last July, we published our Towards a Better Newham uh, Recovery and Reorientation Strategy, and that built on two previous strategies that we had published in response to uh, some pretty enduring and stark features of poverty and inequality here in the London Borough of Newham, which for those listeners of yours who may not be familiar with London or East London, is one of the most deprived uh, local authorities in the country. And we had been working on really baking in an anti-poverty approach uh, to address that systemic inequality, including race inequality as part of our racial justice agenda. You know, I was quite keen to ensure that we, we remained resolutely focused on health and well-being uh, metrics as part of a measure of our economic success. What would the old measure of success have been? In other words, what were the measures that you sort of inherited, if you like, and how, I mean, you've obviously talked about health and well-being and, and equity issues. What would the old approach have been, perhaps, in Newham? So the previous um, approach very much followed the government and national sort of definitions of success. So their definitions of success very much in the context of jobs, quantity, not quality, uh, measures or metrics predicated on productivity and even an increase in land value. In the context of Newham, the profile of our population uh, the characteristics of the jobs that they occupy and their lived experience, that really was not going to enable us to measure whether or not the interventions that we're making and the millions of pounds that we're spending uh, was going to be having any effect. So our approach to you know economic success through the measures that we've developed, uh, put in front and centre the health and well-being and happiness measure, uh, is also built or coupled with a series of measures that really focus on the life outcomes of our residents, particularly those living in low-income households. If you had to say to our listeners one area, one policy, which would be more likely to come out of the new approach as opposed to what would have come out of the old approach, is there something in particular that you'd point to? Just in terms of some key features uh, that we've both introduced and we are developing, uh, absolutely in line with our community wealth building um, agenda, uh, integrating social value in our procurement approach and also the principles of ensuring that all of our suppliers pay the London living wage uh, and demanding a significant percentage of their workforce that will need to be pulled together as part of the procurement and commissioning of service is drawn from the local area. The other thing that we have deployed uh, in a long-standing way was the response to uh, you know, issues of food security facing young people. And uh, most recently, I've guaranteed free school meals to every single young person at primary school 
age and also at nursery. But I'm really concerned about the growing number of secondary school children that are facing issues of food security. So, you know, food security is a really important one and we're doing a huge amount of work um, in that area. And that's that's sort of really clear on how it focuses and changes the the way that you approach your community as an authority and what you can do for it. I'm wondering about... Is, is there a public-facing component to it at all, in, in as much as do people in Newham, uh, will they be aware of these measures and metrics and will they be able to keep check on them? How, how do you get it to mean something to the public or is that not important? Oh, no, it's absolutely important. Um, you know, for me, the transformation that we're embarking on, um, we started back in 2018, it's absolutely fundamental the our resident community are absolutely the heart of what we're doing it's the reason why in addition to community wealth building the inclusive economy strategy our approach to climate emergency but what we've also done is build in a real people power agenda so i um, also since i stepped in embarked on a participatory democracy agenda and we have introduced community-based or neighbourhood-based, should I say, citizen assemblies. We're big fans. Ed and I are huge fans of this. And, and you've got the... It's, it's the first permanent one. It's, is it kind of like a rolling citizens' assembly? Yeah, so we've become the first local authority to introduce permanent standing citizens' assembly anywhere in the country. In addition, we have the pre-existing neighbourhood-based citizen assemblies and we've drawn down £1.4 million from our community infrastructure levy fund and each of the eight neighbourhood assemblies, we are working with residents uh, in order to determine where that money is spent. Give us an example on the sortition method of a decision that you would want the advice on. And it can be, a sort of, I guess it's a local decision where you think the sortition could make a difference. So, um, interestingly enough, back in January 2020, we... Uh, organised a issues-based citizen assembly using the sortition method on uh, some challenging questions as it pertained to climate emergency. And they produced a report uh, with some 24 recommendations across a range of areas that they collaborated with us in terms of specific themes And a number of those have been integrated into our climate emergency action plan that we subsequently published last summer. And what I really love about Sortition Method is that you just don't get the usual voices. We love Sortition. Big fans. Well, well, look, Roxana Fiaz, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on. Um, Really so fascinating to hear the innovation that you're bringing to Newham, the new ideas from GDP to citizens' assemblies to participatory budgeting. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, it's the upsum, or we call the upsum. I think we should let our listeners into a secret, which is that we're recording it in a little triest on a Saturday night. Yes, usually we do the interviews and then we yeah. say what we think. We have had a day to digest what we've heard, so it'll be interesting to see if this comes out any differently. So what did you think? I really enjoyed revisiting it. I enjoyed the 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 way you write about it in the book. And obviously it makes a lot of sense for policy making and for evaluating how you're doing with those policies. But 
something that occurred to me as we talked about it this time that I don't think I thought about last time was how useful these well-being metrics could be as a public-facing thing. And what I mean by that is something that you and I have talked about is how far we lag behind a lot of other countries and a lot of really important things uh, like parental leave, like we talked about last week or work-life balance or, or whatever. And, and it's sort of baffling to me sometimes that people here don't know how good they've got it two countries over and up one or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I yeah, think that's sort of part of the reason that people are blinded to that is this this obsession with saying yes, but we're the fifth biggest economy. We're the, you know we're yes. number five with a huge economy. And actually, if people thought about these other metrics as 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 well as that GDP or instead of, then they'd have a better idea of where we stand. And you know we might just have to be better if people knew that we weren't doing great. That's very interesting. I, the thing I thought was what's encouraging is since we last visited this subject, things have definitely moved on. You've got this, you know, group of countries that are pursuing it, uh, pursuing alternatives to GDP. Kate's work has really has, uh, my senses, has taken off, and lots of people are saying that the donut really resonates with them. And Ruxana, in a relatively poor London borough, is pursuing this agenda. So I think the two challenges that remain are. You know, the simplicity of GDP and how you sort of boil it down. I try and talk about this a bit in the book. And, and the second challenge is making clear that when you're saying that growth isn't, your GDP is a bad measure, um, you're not saying income doesn't matter. I mean, GDP is a measure of national income, but it doesn't tell you who gets what. And so it's like, I think you've got, I think the sort of alternatives to GDP people have got to own who gets what. That is a really important part of the story because, you know, if you've got, as Roxana was saying, you know, 30% of children growing up in poverty and so on, incomes really do matter. And people who care about the alternatives to GDP are, are definitely uh, saying that. But I think the final thing I'd say is it sort of shows, you know, y- you can look at the world and think, are things going just going backwards? And actually, I think this this subject shows actually in certain areas, you know, it, it's it can seem a bit glacial, but, you know, there is progress. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro. Just to remind you, you can find us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Please do email in with thoughts about the book subjects from the book that you'd like to see covered other subjects uh, that you'd like to see covered comments on the book are nice if possible and people should send it if they they spot people out in the wild Ooh, reading your book good i'm not saying take photos because that's a bit intrusive uh, yeah. but you could you could draw a little sketch and send that in to us yeah or say i saw somebody reading it in- yeah i was just thinking if we got some sketches we could be like tony hart and have the gallery interesting interesting any plans for the weekend i really thought you were going to take the bait on uh, tony hart then tony hart yes morph oh morph yes you remember people used to send in their artwork yes. to this show on the bbc i all do the children, i and do then you'd sit i remember saying oh that's pretty good for a seven-year-old or oh, that's not great for a nine-year-old everyone got to be a critic i do remember yeah i'll be honest i thought i thought maybe there'd be more mileage <sighs> in tony hart and morph and vision on or take heart or whatever it was called when you i'd like to thank Catherine trebek uh, I'd like to. You just steamroller on in there. I'd like to thank Catherine Trebek, Kate Rayworth, 
and Roxana Fiaz. Emma Caution produces our podcast. These topics that we talk about every week are meticulously researched by Joel Pierce, who finds the incredible guests as well. Joel is backed up by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been on telly with Lorraine Kelly. He's been scratching his belly. (laughs) These have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.